Chapter five part four of Principia Ethica this LibriVox recording is in the public domain a recording by Frederick Carlson Principia Ethica by G. E. Moore one hundred and three five a fifth conclusion of some importance in relation to practical ethics concerns the manner in which virtues are to be judged. What is meant by calling a thing a virtue? There can be no doubt that Aristotle's definition is right, in the main, so far as he says that it is an habitual disposition to perform certain actions. This is one of the marks by which we should distinguish a virtue from other things. But virtue and vice are also ethical terms. That is to say, when we use them seriously, we mean to convey praise by the one and dispraise by the other and to praise a thing is to assert either that it is good in itself or else that it is a means to good are we then to include in our definition of virtue that it must be a thing good in itself now it is certain that virtues are commonly regarded as good in themselves the feeling of moral approbation with which we generally regard them partly consists in an attribution to them of intrinsic value even a hedonist when he feels a moral sentiment towards them is regarding them as good in themselves and virtue has been the chief competitor with pleasure for the position of sole good nevertheless i do not think we can regard it as part of the definition of virtue that it should be good in itself for the name has so far an independent meaning that if in any particular case a disposition commonly considered virtuous were proved not to be good in itself we should not think that a sufficient reason for saying that it was not a virtue but was only thought to be so the test for the ethical connotation of virtue is the same as that for duty what should we require to be proved about a particular instance in order to say that the name was wrongly applied to it and the test which is thus applied both to virtues and to duties and considered to be final is the question is it means to good if it could be shown of any particular disposition commonly considered virtuous that it was generally harmful we should at once say then it is not really virtuous accordingly a virtue may be defined as an habitual disposition to perform certain actions which generally produce the best possible results nor is there any doubt as to the kind of actions which it is virtuous habitually to perform they are in general those which are duties with this modification that we also include those which would be duties if only it were possible for people in general to perform them accordingly with regard to virtues the same conclusion holds as with regard to duties if they are really virtues they must be generally good as means nor do i wish to dispute that most virtues commonly considered as such as well as most duties really are means to good but it does not follow that they are a bit more useful than those dispositions and inclinations which lead us to perform interested actions as duties from expedient actions so virtues are distinguished from other useful disposition which it is particularly useful to praise and to sanction because there are strong and common temptations to neglect the actions to which they lead 
Virtues, therefore, are habitual dispositions to perform actions which are duties, or which would be duties if a volition were sufficient on the part of most men to ensure their performance. And duties are a particular class of those actions, of which the performance has, at least generally, better total results than the omission. They are, that is to say, actions generally good as means, but not all such actions are duties. The name is confined to that particular class which it is often difficult to perform, because there are strong temptations to the contrary. It follows that in order to decide whether any particular disposition or action is a virtue or a duty, we must face all the difficulties enumerated in section 3 of this chapter. We shall not be entitled to assert that any disposition or action is a virtue or duty except as a result of an investigation such as was there described. We must be able to prove that the disposition or action in question is generally better as a means than any alternatives possible and likely to occur, and this we shall only be able to prove for particular states of society. What is a virtue or a duty in one state of a society may not be so in another. 104. But there is another question with regard to virtues and duties which must be settled by intuition alone, by the properly guarded method which was explained in discussing hedonism. This is the question whether the dispositions and actions commonly regarded, rightly or not, as virtues or duties are good in themselves whether they have intrinsic value virtue or the exercise of virtue has very commonly been asserted by moralists to be either the sole good or at least the best of goods indeed so far as moralists have discussed the question what is good in itself at all they have generally assumed that it must be either virtue or pleasure it would hardly have been possible that such a gross difference of opinion should exist, or that it should have been assumed the discussion must be limited to two such alternatives, if the meaning of the question had been clearly apprehended. And we have already seen that the meaning of the question has hardly ever been clearly apprehended. Almost all ethical writers have committed the naturalistic fallacy, they have failed to perceive that the notion of intrinsic value is simple and unique, and almost all have failed in consequence to distinguish clearly between means and end. They have discussed, as if it were simple and unambiguous, the question, what ought we to do, or what ought to exist now, without distinguishing whether the reason why a thing ought to be done or to exist now is that it itself possessed of intrinsic value or that it is means to what has intrinsic value we shall therefore be prepared to find that virtue has as little claim to be considered the sole or chief good as pleasure more especially after seeing that so far as definition goes to call a thing a virtue is merely to declare that it is a means to good the advocates of virtue have, we shall see, this superiority over the hedonists, that inasmuch as virtues are very complex mental facts, there are included in them many things which are good in themselves, and good in a much higher degree than pleasures. The advocates of hedonism, on the other hand, have the superiority that their method emphasizes the distinction between means and ends. 
although they have not apprehended the distinction clearly enough to perceive that the special ethical predicate which they assign to pleasure as not being a mere means must also apply to many other things one hundred and five with regard then to the intrinsic value of virtue it may be stated broadly one that the majority of dispositions which we call by that name and which really do conform to the definition so far as that they are dispositions generally valuable as means at least in our society have no intrinsic value whatever and two that no one element which is contained in the minority nor even all the different elements put together can without gross absurdity be regarded as the sole good as to the second point it may be observed that even those who hold the view that the sole good is to be found in virtue almost invariably hold other views contradictory of this owing chiefly to a failure to analyze the meaning of ethical concepts the most marked instance of this inconsistency is to be found in the common christian conception that virtue though the sole good can yet be rewarded by something other than virtue heaven is commonly considered as the reward of virtue and yet it is also commonly considered that in order to be such a reward it must contain some element called happiness which is certainly not completely identical with the mere exercise of those virtues which it rewards but if so then something which is not virtue must be either good in itself or an element in which has most intrinsic value it is not commonly observed that if a thing is really to be a reward it must be something good in itself it is absurd to talk of rewarding a person by giving him something which is less valuable than what he already has or which has no value at all thus kant's view that virtue renders us worthy of happiness is in flagrant contradiction with the view which he implies and which is associated with his name that a good will is the only thing having intrinsic value it does not indeed entitle us to make the charge sometimes made that kant is inconsistently an eudaimonist or a hedonist for it does not imply that happiness is so good but it does imply that the good will is not the sole good that a state of things in which we are both virtuous and happy is better in itself than one in which the happiness is absent one hundred and six in order however justly to consider the claims of virtue to intrinsic value it is necessary to distinguish several very different mental states all of which fall under the general definition that they are habitual dispositions to perform duties we may thus distinguish three very different states all of which are liable to be confused with one another upon each of which different moral systems have laid great stress and for each of which the claim has been made that it alone constitutes virtue and by implication that it is the sole good we may first of all distinguish between a that permanent characteristic of mind which consists in the fact that the performance of duty has become in the strict sense a habit like many of the operations performed in the putting on of clothes and b that permanent characteristic which consists in the fact that what may be called good motives habitually help to cause the performance of duties 
and in the second division we may distinguish between the habitual tendency to be actuated by one motive namely the desire to do duty for duty's sake and all other motives such as love benevolence etc we thus get three kinds of virtue of which we are now to consider the intrinsic value a there is no doubt that a man's character may be such that he habitually performs certain duties without the thought ever occurring to him when he wills them either that they are duties or that any good will result from them of such a man we cannot and do not refuse to say that he possesses the virtue consisting in the disposition to perform those duties i for instance am honest in the sense that i habitually abstain from any of the actions legally qualified as thieving even where some other persons would be strongly tempted to commit them it would be grossly contrary to common usage to deny that for this reason i really have the virtue of honesty it is quite certain that i have an habitual disposition to perform a duty and that as many people as possible should have a like disposition is no doubt of great utility it is good as a means yet i may safely assert that neither my various performances of this duty nor my disposition to perform them have the smallest intrinsic value it is because the majority of instances of virtue seem to be of this nature that we may venture to assert that virtues have in general no intrinsic value whatsoever and there seem to be good reason to think that the more generally they are of this nature the more useful they are since a great economy of labor is effected when a useful action becomes habitual or instinctive but to maintain that a virtue which includes no more than this is good in itself is a gross absurdity and of this gross absurdity it may be observed the ethics of aristotle is guilty for his definition of virtue does not exclude a disposition to perform actions in this way whereas his descriptions of the particular virtues plainly include such actions that an action in order to exhibit virtue must be done to kalo eneka is a qualification which he allows often to drop out of sight and on the other hand he seems certainly to regard the exercise of all virtues as an end in itself his treatment of ethics is indeed in the most important points highly unsystematic and confused owing to his attempt to base it on the naturalistic fallacy for strictly we should be obliged by his words to regard theopia as the only thing good in itself in which case the goodness which he attributes to the practical virtues cannot be intrinsic value while on the other hand he does not seem to regard it merely as utility since he makes no attempt to show that they are means to theopia but there seems no doubt that on the whole he regards the exercise of the practical virtues as a good of the same kind as that is having intrinsic value only in a less degree than theopia so that he cannot avoid the charge that he recommends as having intrinsic value such instances of the exercise of virtue as we are at present discussing instances of a disposition to perform actions which in the modern phrase have merely an external rightness that he is right in applying the word virtue to such a disposition cannot be doubted 
but the protest against the view that external rightness is sufficient to constitute either duty or virtue a protest which is commonly and with some justice attributed as a merit to christian morals seems in the main to be a mistaken way of pointing out an important truth namely that where there is only external rightness there is certainly no intrinsic value it is commonly assumed though wrongly that to call a thing a virtue means that it has intrinsic value and on this assumption the view that virtue does not consist in a mere disposition to do externally right actions does really constitute an advance in ethical truth beyond the ethics of aristotle the inference that if virtue includes in its meaning good in itself then aristotle's definition of virtue is not adequate and expresses a false ethical judgment is perfectly correct only the premise that virtue does include this in its meaning is mistaken one hundred and seven b a man's character may be such that when he habitually performs a particular duty there is in each case of his performance present in his mind a love of some intrinsically good consequence which he expects to produce by his action or a hatred of some intrinsically evil consequence which he hopes to prevent by it in such a case this love or hatred will generally be part cause of his action and we may then call it one of his motives where such a feeling as this is present habitually in the performance of duties it cannot be denied that the state of the man's mind in performing it contains something intrinsically good nor can it be denied that where a disposition to perform duties consists in the disposition to be moved by them by such feelings we call that disposition a virtue here therefore we have instances of virtue the exercise of which really contains something that is good in itself and in general we may say that wherever a virtue does consist in a disposition to have certain motives the exercise of that virtue may be intrinsically good although the degree of its goodness may vary indefinitely according to the precise nature of the motives and their objects in so far then as christianity tends to emphasize the importance of motives of the inward disposition with which a right action is done we may say that it has done a service to ethics but it should be noticed that when christian ethics as represented by the new testament are praised for this two distinctions of the utmost importance which they entirely neglect are very commonly overlooked in the first place the new testament is largely occupied with continuing the tradition of the hebrew prophets by recommending such virtues as justice and mercy as against more ritual observances and in so far as it does this it is recommending virtues which may be merely good as means exactly like aristotelian virtues this characteristic of its teaching must therefore be rigorously distinguished from that which consists in its enforcement of such a view as that to be angry without a cause is as bad as actually to commit murder and in the second place though the new testament does praise some things which are only good as means and others which are good in themselves it entirely fails to recognize the distinction though the state of the man who is angry may be really as bad in itself as that of the murderer 
and so far Christ may be right. His language would lead us to suppose that it is also as bad in every way, that it also causes as much evil. And this is utterly false. In short, when Christian ethics approves, it does not distinguish whether its approval asserts this is a means to good, or this is good in itself and hence it both praises things merely good as means as if they were good in themselves and things merely good in themselves as if they were also good as means moreover it should be noticed that if christian ethics does draw attention to those elements in virtues which are good in themselves it is by no means alone in this the ethics of Plato are distinguished by upholding, far more clearly and consistently than any other system, the view that intrinsic value belongs exclusively to those states of mind which consist in love of what is good or hatred of what is evil. 108. But C. The ethics of Christianity are distinguished from those of Plato by emphasizing the value of one particular motive that which consists in the emotion excited by the idea not of any intrinsically good consequences of the action in question nor even of the action itself but by that of its rightness this idea of abstract rightness and the various degrees of the specific emotion excited by it are what constitute the specifically moral sentiment or conscience an action seemed to be most properly termed internally right solely in virtue of the fact that the agent has previously regarded it as right the idea of rightness must have been present to his mind but need not necessarily have been among his motives and we mean by a conscientious man one who when he deliberates always has this idea in his mind and does not act until he believes that his action is right the presence of this idea and its action as a motive certainly seems to have become more common objects of notice and commendation owing to the influence of christianity but it is important to observe that there is no ground for the view which kant implies that it is the only motive which the new testament regards as intrinsically valuable there seems little doubt that when christ tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves he did not mean merely what Kant calls practical love, beneficence of which the sole motive is the idea of its rightness or the emotion caused by that idea. Among the inward dispositions of which the New Testament inculcates the value, they are certainly included what Kant terms mere natural inclinations, such as pity, etc., but what are we to say of virtue when it consists in a disposition to be moved to the performance of duties by this idea it seems difficult to deny that the emotion excited by rightness as such has some intrinsic value and still more difficult to deny that its presence may heighten the value of some holes into which it enters but on the other hand it certainly has not more value than any of the motives treated in our last section emotions of love towards things really good in themselves and as for kant's implication that it is the sole good this is consistent with the other of his own views for he certainly regards it as better to perform the actions to which he maintains that it prompts us namely material duties than to omit them but if better at all then these actions must be better either in themselves or as a means 
the former hypothesis would directly contradict the statement that this motive was sole good and the latter is excluded by kant himself since he maintains that no actions can cause the existence of this motive and it may also be observed that the other claim which he makes for it namely that it is always good as a means can also be maintained it is as certain as anything can be that very harmful actions may be done from conscientious motives and that conscience does not always tell us the truth about what actions are right nor can it be maintained even that it is more useful than many other motives all that can be admitted is that it is one of the things which are generally useful what more i have to say with regard to those elements in some virtues which are good in themselves and with regard to their relative degrees of excellence as well as the proof that all of them together cannot be the sole good may be deferred to the next chapter one hundred and nine the main points in this chapter to which i desire to direct attention may be summarized as follows one i first pointed out how the subject matter with which it deals namely ethical judgments on conduct involves a question utterly different in kind from the two previously discussed namely a what is the nature of the predicate peculiar to ethics and b what kinds of things themselves possess this predicate practical ethics asks not what ought to be but what ought we to do it asks what actions are duty what actions are right and what wrong and all these questions can only be answered by showing the relation of the actions in question as causes or necessary conditions to which is good in itself the inquiries of practical ethics thus fall entirely under the third division of the ethical questions questions which ask what is good as a means which is equivalent to what is means to good what is cause or necessary condition of things good in themselves but two it asks this question almost exclusively with regard to actions which it is possible for most men to perform if only they will them and with regard to these it does not ask merely which among them will have some good or bad result but which among all the actions possible to volition at any moment will produce the best total result to assert that an action is a duty is to assert that it is such a possible action which will always in certain known circumstances produce better results than any other it follows that a universal proposition of which duty is predicate so far from being self-evident always require a proof which it is beyond our present means of knowledge ever to give but three all that ethics has attempted or can attempt is to show that certain actions possible by volition generally produce better or worse total results than any probable alternative and it must obviously be very difficult to show this with regard to the total results even in a comparatively near future whereas that what has the best results in such a near future also has the best on the whole is a point requiring an investigation which it has not received if it is true and if accordingly we give the name of duty to actions which generally produce better total results in the near future than any possible alternative 
it may be possible to prove that a few of the commonest rules of duty are true but only in certain conditions on society which may be more or less universally presented in history and such a proof is only possible in some cases without a correct judgment of what things are good or bad in themselves a judgment which has never yet been offered by ethical writers with regard to actions of which the general utility is thus proved the individual should always perform them but in other cases where rules are commonly offered he should rather judge of the probable results in his particular case guided by a correct conception of what things are intrinsically good or bad four in order that any action may be shown to be a duty it must be shown to fulfil the above conditions but the actions commonly called duties do not fulfil them to any greater extent than expedient or interested actions by calling them duties we only mean that they have in addition certain non-ethical predicates similarly by virtue is mainly meant a permanent disposition to perform duties in this restricted sense and accordingly a virtue if it is really a virtue must be good as a means in the sense that it fulfils the above conditions but it is not better as a means than non-virtuous dispositions it generally has no value in itself and where it has it is far from being the sole good or the best of goods accordingly virtue is not as is commonly implied an unique ethical predicate end of chapter five